Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This week marked an important watershed in the history of crypto and cryptocurrencies. Coinbase, one of the leading exchanges for buying and selling crypto, went public. And although appropriately enough, its share price was a little volatile, it has achieved a very substantial valuation above the $85 billion mark where it first launched. Simultaneously, Bitcoin, the most popularly traded of the different crypto assets, remains, notwithstanding its own volatility, at a price higher by almost four times than what it was just a few months ago. Bitcoin, the most popularly traded of the cryptocurrencies, retains a price much, much higher than it was just a few short months ago. I am thoroughly fascinated by the phenomenon that is crypto. For one thing, among my friends, opinion seems to be very deeply divided. On the one hand are economists, investors, capitalists of all kinds, who tend themselves to be highly skeptical of the idea that there's something of enduring value or meaning in this new asset class. On the other hand, are enthusiasts, open-minded, creative tech people, many of whom have themselves invested heavily in crypto, who are wildly optimistic about the possibility of this asset class not only to endure, but to grow and to develop and to spread. Alongside this fascinating debate is a further question about the nature of power. Who has power over finances? 
Is it individuals? Is it the nation state? Is it a distributed international network of the kind that via the blockchain is sought to be created by the cryptocurrencies? Few questions could be more relevant for this year's theme on Deep Background, the theme of power. To discuss all of these issues with me, I'm joined today by a pioneer in crypto, Bobby Lee. Bobby was the co-founder and former CEO of China's first Bitcoin exchange. Right now, he's founder and CEO of Ballet, a startup that helps people securely store their digital assets in its own unique wallet. On top of that, he's a member of the Bitcoin Foundation's board of directors, and he's the author of a forthcoming book, The Promise of Bitcoin. All in all, a perfect person to answer my persistent crypto questions. Bobby, thank you so much for joining me. Let me start with the most basic question, which is, what exactly do you think crypto is? Is it a currency or is it something else? Yeah, this is a great way to start. So colloquially, we call it cryptocurrency. And Bitcoin was the first to come to market as a decentralized cryptocurrency in 2009. And even the white paper called it peer-to-peer electronic cash. That's, I think that's how it got the name cryptocurrency. Uh, this year marks my 10-year involvement with Bitcoin. And through my 10-year journey, I have come to the current understanding is that cryptocurrency should be more considered as a digital asset class rather than currency. And the reason is that in society, when we think of currency, we think of the money we use in day-to-day, whether it's the paper notes, the coins and bills, whether it's a foreign currency like the euro or the Canadian dollar. And even though cryptocurrency and Bitcoin have used the term currency, cryptocurrency, digital currency over the last 10, 12 years, I more and more am a believer that fundamentally the power and the strength of Bitcoin is in its usefulness as a digital asset, as a sort of a global reserve asset class. So to answer your question promptly, it's more of an asset than than the currency that people are used to. That's really helpful and it's totally reasonable, but most assets are either a promise of future payment in some currency or form or an ownership stake in some legally constructed entity in some form or they're tangible. Right. I mean, that's I think if you know we had to sort of do assets 101, we'd probably say, at least before the emergence of crypto, that those are our our three classes of what assets could be. Crypto doesn't seem to be any of those three things. So I'm wondering what does it mean to call it a digital asset class? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Basically, the traditional asset classes people are most familiar with are the ones you talked about, like stocks, stocks fundamentally represent ownership in a company, which is an entity that can make money through sales, revenue, through providing products and services to the community. So that's the notion of a stock in a company. Bonds are also an asset class. That's a notion of debt. You're lending your money to someone else, in this case, the United States government or any other uh, foreign government or even a corporation, like corporate debt, uh, corporate bonds. And 
the idea is that you lend it to them with the notion that uh, they're taking a risk to to make the money and then you get rewarded with an interest rate. And the third class is real estate, which, uh, as you pointed out, it's something very tangible. It's like a home, a plot of land where you you have title to it. And then it gives you the government society gives you the right to to stay in that or stay on that property. You own that property and derive income, rental income or whatever uh, business you do. And then the other asset class, the major asset class is precious metals. So these are <clears throat> commodities. Most uh, people know them as gold and silver. But if you want to just expand that, we also have things like diamond, jewelry. And if you expand that further, even fine art, more tangible goods. The, the value of the, those kind of tangible assets is in the eye of the beholder. Why is that worth something when, when, the only, when it's only pretty, right? You can't eat it. Well, I, I think that's a really good clarifying question. Um, and it, it, I think we can direct it straight at crypto because yeah. I, I think everyone can buy that there's something arbitrary about saying we value gold or we value silver or we value diamonds. The question is whether if that's what crypto is going to be, is it in some meaningful sense comparable to those assets? And I think maybe that's a good place to then focus. Yeah, so looking at gold and silver, I think is very insightful in terms of helping people understand why crypto, especially Bitcoin, can be valuable, even if it's something that's sort of in the ether, you can't touch it, you can't see it, right? For a lot of people, the virtual aspect of it scares people. Imagine someone like my mother who's never seen or touched or you know, she doesn't understand what Bitcoin really is. It's just a string of numbers, right? So going back to gold and silver, the reason why multiple societies and multiple regions all around the world all ended up using gold and silver as a monetary instrument, there's a fundamental reason to it. It wasn't like there was one king who said the whole earth shall use gold and silver as money. Gold and silver evolved to become money as instruments of monetary transfer independently in different, many different regions all around the earth, okay? And I, I think th- to crack that sort of mystery is to look at the properties. It turns out that it's really fungible, it's got this shiny look, but the really interesting thing about gold is it's really dense. It means that for every similar unit of volume, whether it's cubic inch or cubic centimeter, it's very, very heavy. And it turns out something dense cannot it cannot be counterfeited using something lighter whereas something lighter can be can be counterfeited using something heavier so for that reason i think uh now certainly gold is not the most heavy heaviest element but the fact that yeah it's i was also, just gonna i was just gonna say yeah. bobby i mean i think what what i naturally would say in response to that is sure one of the features that gold had that made it useful was that because it's dense it's harder to to fake of course History is littered with people who tried to, to fake gold and people tried to use lead and a whole range of other dense um, metals. Silver was a little less dense, but it also managed to become an effective exchange of value. But what I really want to press us on is what are the features of Bitcoin that would be comparable and also sure. why we need another asset sure, sure. class that's comparable to gold and silver. Yeah. So Bitcoin being a digital sort of asset, digital good, digital currency, shares none of the physical attributes or properties of gold and silver. However, what it does share is in di- in terms of digital form, it is fungible, okay? So unlike a house, for example, if you have a large house and now you want to retire, you can't just say, I want to sell off my unused garage and go on a vacation with that money, right? The house, you either sell the whole but house- But Bobby, you were, you were saying, yeah. th- those are arguments for Bitcoin as a currency, but as you were saying, 
that's probably not the right way to think about it now. I think we need more conceptual clarity here because assets can be translated into currencies, right? So if I'm owning, you know, pork belly futures, that's an asset, it's an intangible asset. The pork bellies are still on the pig, but I can trade them because there is a agreed upon mechanism that makes them fungible, um, a measure of how much pork we're talking about accepted by a market. And because I can translate them into currency. So they're saleable assets, but no one would say that they're currencies. You know, you bring up a good point. So pork belly, technically, the t- pork bellies you're talking about are just probably the traded form, the commodities futures form of version. These are futures yeah. contracts. You're not literally talking about pork belly that's on a live pig, right? So that's a, it's what fancy terms is like a derivative. So when you say you want to then convert that to something else, like like a supermarket, you know, grocery shopping, you really need an intermediate. And this is where the word money comes in. That's why money was invented in society. So before money came about, it was all barter, as you know. Back then, we didn't have pork belly contracts. But if we did have pork belly contracts, you, the contract is worth this much value, and you can only exchange it for something else that's worth that much value because there was no intermediate money to break it down and allow you to spend smaller amounts. So money was a human invention, allowing people to exchange different valuable things, items, and promises so that they can save the value and use it across time. Money is what transports value through time. I'll, I'll drop the what's the difference between currency and money as too philosophical a, a question. So I do understand that the, the genius of the creation of crypto was to draw on the metaphor of gold and silver, right? Why do we need this new set of things? Let's say in the best case scenario, crypto goes alongside gold and silver and is treated sort of like the way gold and silver are. Why do we need another asset class like this? So technology has progressed really fast and the internet has fundamentally changed how society operates. And up until Bitcoin, how does value transfer on the internet? It's always through a third party. Meaning if you and I were to do business, if I owed you money, I could send it to you by PayPal, Venmo, or a bank transfer, or Swift wire transfer, and so on and so forth. It always involves a third party. Over the last 12 years of Bitcoin's existence, it turns out more and more people agree that what Bitcoin can provide society on the internet in terms of payments is useful. The uh, evidence speaks for itself. Over the last 12 years, we've seen more and more dollars worth of Bitcoin being transacted on the so-called public blockchain. And I think that trend will continue. So the only way to do that transfer of value through the internet in a direct peer-to-peer fashion today, at least the market agrees, Bitcoin is the most popular way to do that from a market capitalization and a sort of a brute amount of volume that goes on for Bitcoin. Bobby, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, it it does make sense, but I'm a little confused by it still because I've heard a lot of people say that the original idea of crypto was just what you said. It would be the online currency that we would use to transact business on the internet. And for that reason, there was a logic to it. And I think that made a good deal of sense. And yet, because it turns out, so far at least, that the value of crypto, including Bitcoin, has been extraordinarily volatile, that has made people pretty skeptical of the idea, or some people at least, that this will be the means of exchange on the internet. Add to that the fact that there are governments out there in the world that don't love the idea of their currencies over which they have a certain amount of regulatory control, not total, but some regulatory control, being displaced, and who are also worried about unregulated uses of currency transfer over the internet. If that's the case, then the 
the argument for the value of crypto then shouldn't be based on it as a means of exchange on the internet, but as something else, some store of value. And I, I took that to be behind your initial statement that it's too simple to think of to think of crypto as just a currency. It sounds like the arguments are kind of constantly in motion. You know, if someone says, well, is it a store of value? People say, no, no, it's not a store of value primarily. It's a mechanism for doing business on the internet. Then someone says, well, it's kind of hard to do that. People say, well, it's a store of value and it hedges against inflation in the same way that holding gold might hedge you against inflation. And so that's the part that I'm just a teeny bit confused by. Yeah. Here's how I would approach it, okay? So Bitcoin fundamentally is money. So let me make that statement loud and clear. Bitcoin is money. The usefulness of money doesn't mean it has to only be used for payments. Money has to hold its value. So to clarify, for example, look at gold is money, right? Traditionally, people believe gold is money. And same thing with the U.S. dollar. We know for a fact that in a given day, in a given 24-hour period, this much gold goes around being exchanged for people to buy and sell. Okay, meaning trade, trading uh, hands. Okay, now it turns out for gold and silver, people don't do that anymore much. Okay, however, for the U.S. dollar, we know how much U.S. dollars traded uh, is exchanged from person to business and so on in a given day. Okay, that that's a large number. However, more U.S. dollars stays put in a given day than the amount of U.S. dollar that moves around. So my point is, both of those are valid and legitimate use cases of the U.S. dollar. Meaning the U.S. dollar as money is not just valuable because it's changing hands to pay for coffee or grocery shopping, but it's also extremely valuable, the fact that it's staying put, sitting in the bank account. So this is what happens with Bitcoin as well. So Bitcoin today is valuable as a digital asset, as digital cryptocurrency, because of its two features. One is it can be used to send as payment of a value between two individuals directly on the internet, or it can also be used just staying put holding value. Now, to your point about what about the fact that Bitcoin prices fluctuate so much? And my explanation for that is simple one. Bitcoin is still young. We are in the 13th year of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is only 12 years old. It hasn't even become a teenager yet. In my opinion, Bitcoin deserves to be in the greatest of all asset classes like housing, real estate, like stocks, like bonds, like derivatives, and like uh, precious metals. We'll be back in a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. 
They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. One thing you know a ton about, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, is how the Chinese government has in the past and will in the future attempt to regulate or engage Bitcoin. And I'd really love to hear your thoughts about that. And here's why. Sometimes one hears big Bitcoin optimists talking about how one of the huge benefits of Bitcoin as an asset class is that you can sort of, you, the individual owner, can evade uh, central governmental scrutiny. And what it makes me wonder is, can the Chinese government, using the regulatory tools it has available to it, really substantially regulate the use of cryptocurrencies? Does China suggest that other governments, even governments that are more concerned about individual liberties like property rights, will also be able, in the long run, to engage in pretty aggressive regulation of Bitcoin such that it's not really going to be an asset that's in some way free of government regulation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, this is a very important topic. It's very timely as well. So uh, here's my perspective. 
there's a lot of confusion about the term regulating Bitcoin. So each country's government certainly has a right to regulate and allow or disallow business activities. That said, today, China openly does not allow banks, exchanges, restaurants, and others to circulate and transact in Bitcoin. That's just a hard rule. Uh, it, it may not be written in law, but all the implementation is, is such that uh, even in private you know, banks and exchanges are told you cannot do this business related to Bitcoin. However, Bitcoin itself, as, it, as a pure commodity, that cannot be touched because it is decentralized. Meaning, no matter how the Chinese government might hate Bitcoin, might disallow it to circulate in China, Bitcoin itself can still exist and will still exist and will not be squashed by Chinese government. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a, there's a very minor distinction there. It's a very important, it's a very subtle distinction that people need to understand. That Bitcoin itself cannot be squashed due to the decentralized nature. Let me ask you another question about the creation of this asset class. The metaphor of mining was used by the creators of, of crypto. And unfortunately, it turns out that much like literal mining, which is terribly destructive to the environment, and which people will do anyway because they really want the, the gold and the silver or the diamonds that they can get out of the earth, uh, similarly, mining crypto is detrimental to uh, the environment, potentially extremely so. I, I read recently that the amount of um, energy that's currently being used in mining Bitcoin is comparable to that used by the country of Argentina in a year. In some parts of the United States and of the world, it's as high as 10% of total uh, energy use. And we're already starting to hear environmentalist voices saying, this is a disaster, you know, much like mining was originally. Does that seem to you to put a, a damper on the possibilities of crypto? In other words, does sustainability effectively become a, a limitation on the capacity of crypto in the long run. So unfortunately, I don't share that perspective. And, and let me explain to you why. So as you pointed out correctly, traditional mining is very destructive, is very energy intensive. Any sort of industry where they pull natural resources is destructive to the earth. If you look at it more holistically, any action we do when done to the excessive damages the earth and the environment. So it's all about moderation, whether it's fishing in the North Sea, whether it's uh, it's mining. Uh... Forgive me, humans have never been very um, moderate when it comes to mining, you know? I mean, the whole idea of a gold rush is to embody the idea that people are not moderate when it comes to mining. And so I don't expect that people will be moderate when it comes Absolutely. to mining so crypto. It's, so my point is this is a government problem. It's a regulation problem. It's a society problem. It's not a problem unique with Bitcoin. So even before Bitcoin came around, if you look at the the petroleum oil industry, I mean, that's hugely destructive. You know, if you want to pick on, we should pick on the energy industry itself, right? Why do we rely on fossil fuels? We can criticize the energy industry, and I'm very happy. I do so on my show, and I think it's totally legitimate to criticize it. But what we're talking about here is not energy that's being used for some necessary function to drive the economy. We're talking about the invention oh, I dis I of a brand, as you were saying, of a brand new asset class, and that brand new asset class doesn't need to exist, right? We could go back to the drawing board, like the clever people who created cryptocurrencies did, and say, let's do something new. Let's come up with a new asset class where mining it does not require the destruction of the environment, and then perhaps we could come up with some alternative. And I think it is reasonable at this stage, as you were saying, 
Crypto is brand new. And if we look at something that's brand new and is harming the environment, it seems as a regulatory matter entirely plausible to say, let's ban mining it. And if you ban the mining of it, you will have greater protection for the environment. I, I disagree. I, I very much disagree. The reason people mine Bitcoin is because the market forces uh, convince people to want to mine Bitcoin. There's no directive uh, by some evil empire that says thou shall mine Bitcoin at the at the detriment of the of the. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Right. Wait a minute. The free market doesn't care at all about the environment, right? The very definition of why you have environmental regulation is that left unregulated, the free market would destroy the earth. As in fact, I agree with you. So think about it. If you want to regulate, you should regulate the energy. If we ban fossil fuel, if we ban coal production power plants, then Bitcoin mining will be all renewable energy and solar energy, wind energy, geothermal energy. If we ban all fossil fuel by regulation, then by definition, Bitcoin mining will still continue to be on renewable energy. I don't agree because although I strongly support the limitations on the use of fossil fuels for energy, the reason it's taking us a long time to get there as human societies is that so much of our economy is already bound up in useful methods of consuming those fossil fuels. And it's taking, there's a long transition period in historical terms as you transition economies to new forms of energy production. And so adding in a new massive energy suck raises the question of costs and benefits. So that's really the issue. To me, you'd have but, but to convince Noah, me- Noah, let me ask that the, you. No, let, me, let me just finish. You'd have to convince me that the benefits of crypto outweigh its costs. And that to me would be the regulatory question, the same way it would be for any other human activity that takes up a lot of energy. No, no it's, it's all subjective. Okay, here's what I mean by that. So- Back to about democratic elected governments. What I love about democratic elected governments, in the end, the government has a right to set the regulations, but in the end, the government is also elected by the people. If the people of the citizens of the country want to allow fossil fuel burning cars and fossil fuel burning airlines and airplanes, then so be it. But maybe one day the people will say, hey, I'm fed up with fossil fuel. I'm fed up with the greenhouse, blah, blah, blah. Let's ban all internal combustion engine cars. Let's ban all planes and only allow for electric trains, right? That's a valid approach too. And if the people want to want to elect a government that says, let's put a ban on all cryptocurrency, then so be it, right? All I'm saying is the people today have chosen to embrace cryptocurrency by, by virtue of the amount of activity that's going on and people doing it, right? That's just the evidence of people embracing it. The value is always in the eye of the beholder. Bobby, I really want to thank you for sharing your ideas and your expertise. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Noah. I'm really grateful to Bobby Lee for joining us on Deep Background. I confess that I do feel still a little bit confused about certain crucial aspects of crypto in the aftermath of our conversation. For one thing, should we think of crypto as a currency, a form of money? Or should we think of crypto as an asset class that is not indeed a form of money or a form of currency in the way that gold and silver are? The reason I ask that is not purely philosophical, because it has everything to do with whether the world needs a new asset class. And that question in turn has to do with whether the world will tolerate a new asset class. 
Here's where the power of governments and regulators comes in. I'm convinced that if governments really decided that they didn't want crypto to continue, they would have the capacity, ultimately, to make it so difficult to engage in the sale and trade of that asset that the sale of the asset would inevitably decline. And although in a decentralized world of computers, the assets still might, quote-unquote, exist somewhere out there, they would really very much be likely to decline in value if it was very costly to access them. So what we need to know is, what will governments do? Will environmental regulators decide that this new asset class is just too costly in terms of what it does to the environment? Will government regulators be too worried about the possibility of people using crypto for unlawful purposes, or more broadly, of undercutting the power of the nation state to control the finances of its nation and of the people who live there? These are ongoing, pressing, and challenging questions. Crypto, in some sense, is the digital manifestation in financial terms of the internet. To that extent, crypto assets would continue to exist wherever there was an internet, even if governments made it more difficult to access them. And in that sense, especially with a broader public embrace of the possibilities of crypto, it does seem entirely possible that even if it is bad for the environment, we're still going to see a significant expansion of crypto. If that's the case, all it takes is for people to converge on the belief that the asset is valuable and that will make it so. That might sound like magic, but it isn't. It's no different than the basic economic logic of all money and of all currency. My takeaway from my conversation with Bobby Lee about crypto is that there is much more to be said. It is an issue that we will revisit here on Deep Background, either in a further conversation about crypto in its extensions, or more broadly, when we talk about financial and economic forms of power. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music. 
but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.